Welcome to Under the Microscope with Dr. James Trosco. This is going to be part two of episode one, where we plan on taking a little bit of a deeper dive into Dr. Trosco's research regarding radiation and cancer genetics. With that, I leave the floor to Dr. Trosco to begin this discussion. One question sure. as this next slide comes up with with the nutrition and diet concept in in terms of human cancers how does that fit in with what we're currently doing on the prevention stage because from what i've seen and it's limited in my like my life so far in terms of looking at the hallmarks of cancer and the biology of cancer when we consider that in the prevention stage, is that lacking and is that still an area that we forget about a lot of the time? Or am I just not seeing people speak about it enough? Boy, you really are asking the important questions. The <laughs> simple answer to that before I get to the science is that... Uh, human beings don't understand the mechanisms by which nutrition in a human being works. Much of the literature about this or that causes or retards or prevents cancer usually comes from animal studies where we can control in the lab their diets. All right. And what human being only gets exposed to the chemicals in the fruits and vegetables that we eat? Because at the same time, they're smoking, they're drinking, they're not exercising. In other words, all of these other factors interfere with the role that the nutrition might play. But by understanding that and looking at whole populations, we know we know that nutrition and diets do play a major role. One only has to look, for example, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, many populations, such as the Japanese populations, in Japan, they had, before the bombs were dropped, a uniform diet from Sapporo in the north to Nagasaki in the south, they ate the same sushi. They ate the, the <laughs> same diet. I mean, it, green tea and the vegetables and low calorie and exercise, all of those played a role. Then they migrated out of Japan, usually during that war, to Brazil, to the United States, to Hawaii. And what do you see? They... Now their phenotypes are different. They're looking Western, all right, in terms of their size. And if you look at their cancer rates, they're completely different from the Japanese that lived in Japan eating the traditional diet because they're eating the Western diet, all right? Polish, people who moved from Poland to Chicago, who in Poland would eat sauerkraut every day, just like the Koreans ate kimchi every day, all right? But they get to Chicago, and they're eating the diet of the people in Chicago, the pizzas and what have you. And now... The hot dogs at the ballpark. Right, exactly. 
and now <laughs> the breast cancer frequency of Jap uh, po uh, Polish women in Poland versus in Chicago are dramatically different, all right? Yeah. Finally, this major biological structure and functions and concepts have to be studied in the mechanisms of the pathogenesis of acute and chronic diseases. And these are the seven things that I think are important for you guys to consider. Normal adult organ-specific stem cells, both the secreted versus the gap-junctional forms of communication. I have to keep this in mind. You can grow organ-specific adult stem cells in three-dimensional cultures. I'm going to show you that. To account for the developmental stage, gender, and even rare inherited genetic mutations really puts a challenge to personalized medicine. To account for complex cell interactions in 3D, to use co-cultures with stromal cells and immune cells. This is something that I think your company trying to devise technologies or using existing technologies to study this three-dimensional growth of many brains, for example, is going to have to be done. And to use iPS cells, the induced pluripotent cells, for conditional mechanistic but not therapeutic application. Because the very nature by which these cells were isolated, you had to genetically engineer them with the four Yamanaka embryonic genes into a somatic cell. So that somatic cell not only had its own uh, endogenous embryonic genes in its genome, but now it has the exogenous added genes. So when you put those cells back into an adult human, you now are at risk for forming a teratoma. So it's important that these cells, iPS cells, be used to study biology, but always understanding that even there, you've got an extra set of embryonic genes in its genome. And by definition, iPS cells, when you put it back into an adult, will in fact be at risk for forming a teratoma. And finally, Try to consider classical studies of chronic diseases such as carcinogenesis rather than to use artificial intelligence. And now with that as a, a lot of background, conceptual background, hypothesis background, let's go into the science. Yeah, exactly. You know, what we've all been wanting to chat about today is the the science and i think you're going to start with uh, oct4a right. here and chat a little bit about that the example of the isolation of adult organ specific stem cells based on two characteristics you know we've got over 20,000 genes in our genome yeah. but the oct4a which is the queen bee gene for stem cells whenever oct4a is expressed 
as a transcription factor in our nuclei, that cell is going to be undifferentiated. It's going to be a stem cell. On the other hand, the connexin genes, there's about 20 of those. These are the quintessential genes for growth control, differentiation, apoptosis, and senescence. In other words, the technology exists today for you to scan any cell genome for its 20,000 gene expression. And that's fine and dandy. It makes nice heat maps. But it doesn't <laughs> tell you that only two genes have to be monitored. One is the OCT4A gene. That tells you if it's expressed, it's a stem cell. And two, the connexin gene is not expressed in stem cells. And whenever you see it okay. expressed, it's in a differentiated cell. So you only yeah. have to monitor those two particular genes. And this slide here shows you the powerful role that these gap junction genes play in making us a three-dimensional creature. Remember, bacteria, single-cell organisms, don't have these gap junction genes nor do they have functional gap junctions. They only talk to each other by secreted primitive hormones, all right? That's how bacteria talk to other bacteria in a pool of bacteria. But it turns out we isolated, in this case, a rat liver stem cell, a WB cell. It's an oval cell of the rat liver, and if you disassociate a pure culture of these rat liver oval or stem cells and put them on matrigel within 24 hours those cells just crawl together and form this beautiful architecture they somehow homed in on each other and started to form that architecture that you see in the left panel but if you genetically engineer those normal rat liver oval stem cells with a dominant mutation for the gap junction gene, when you put those cells on matrigel 24 hours later, those cells don't know how to organize. In other words, they needed gap junctions to form the kind of crosstalk to give them direction for organizing in a three-dimensional sense what they're supposed to be doing. Now I'm going to give you a picture of cell interactions in organisms. This picture tries to illustrate of the 200 trillion cells and the many organ systems of our body what actually happens in vitro, uh, in vivo. You have your few stem cells that are attached to its own niche. In other words, its extracellular matrix. And when they attach, the niche is sending signals to the genome to turn on and turn off certain genes. It turns on OCT4, 
it makes sure that connection genes are turned off. On the other hand, if you realize that in, in the body, those stem cells are exposed to all kinds of factors, endogenous factors, exogenous factors, uh, growth factors, hormones, neurotransmitters that are just sloshing through our body, and then diet and toxicants every day, every second of the day is sloshing through our body. But most importantly, two elements, oxygen and calcium, are absolutely critical in determining uh, also what signal goes to that nucleus. So just let me stop here a moment. The external extracellular matrix is sending a set of signals. At the same time, those cells are being exposed to growth factors, hormones, neurotransmitters. If they have receptors for them, that sends signals. And then the diet and toxicants that are in our systemic system are going to interact with those cells and also sending signals. So there's signals coming in from different exogenous and endogenous factors. But at the same time, the two most critical signals for mammalian cells, metazoans, is oxygen and calcium. Remember back in the evolution of the Earth, oxygen was not available all right, and calcium yeah. was also limited in the ocean where these bugs, single cell organisms existed. However, if those two elements are sending signals also, the net effect of all of these signals from all of these different sources is gonna tell that stem cell to shut off OC4, and turn on connexin genes, at which time they now will make progenitor cells. These cells, by the way, under these sets of circumstances and signals, can either divide symmetrically to make two daughter cells that are going to maintain stemness, or one daughter cell that's going to maintain stemness, but the other is going to be forced to uh, differentiate. And that's what you see here are these progenitor cells that have lost their ability to self-replicate. In other words, they are no longer stem cells. But they have a limited lifespan. In other words, as uh, Leonard Hayflick uh, showed many years ago, that normal human fibroblasts can only proliferate 50, uh, about 50 times. And then they finally either terminally differentiate or apoptose. And uh, that whole signal, I mean, that whole system is going on every day in every tissue, every organ throughout our body. This more or less puts a holistic picture of what I've just said. You and I get exposed to uh, stressors every second of the day. Radiation, cosmic ray just went through my head right now. Chemicals, I ate breakfast this morning. 
biological agents. I may have a, uh, uh, an infection, for example. When that happens, these stressors are going to affect basically all of our organ systems. But I've broken it down to just two. Your immune system versus all of the epithelial cells in our kidney, our lung, our liver, our skin, our brain. And they're happening at the same time. All right. So when that stressor affects the immune system, it turns out they form reactive oxygen species, for example, which then will release extracellular communication molecules, cytokines, uh, 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 growth factors, and what have you, that now are going to interact with the epithelial cells of any organ that has a receptor for those. And it can act on the stem cell of that organ, the progenitor cell of that organ, or the terminally differentiated cell of that organ. And each case, the pathway is going to be different, triggered by any of these three different types of cells. If they have receptors, they may not react at the stem cell level, but at the progenitor cell level or at the uh, terminally differentiated cell level. All of these things are different, all right? And you're going to say, well, so what? Well, the end result of all of that interaction is that you're either going to have a cell that's going to proliferate, differentiate, apoptose, or senesce. This is part of my Jesus moment when I was a graduate student working with Dr. Rosenberg when he discovered cisplatinum. On the top A panel, you're looking at, uh, on the left, single cell bacteria that were growing in his chemostat. He had an accident in the lab. If you know anything about that history, I don't have time to go into it, but uh, he believed he could stop cancer growth by altering the electromagnetic field in which cells would grow. And he used single cell bacteria as a surrogate for a cancer cell. And it turns out the accident that he had that he thought at the moment uh, would give him a Nobel Prize was that when he changed the electromagnetic field of that chemostat of bacteria, all of a sudden, overnight, he saw a bacteria spaghetti. <laughs> he said, Eureka, I've caused, I've cured cancer because he stopped the growth of these bacteria cells. And what happened was it didn't block the DNA synthesis, but it blocked the septation of the bacteria. So it just replicated its DNA, but it didn't septate or separate, and it just became long. And you see this in the C panel, uh, the single cell on the left of the bacteria. This is treated with the uh, cisplatinum drug that was the accident. He had a cis, he had a platinum electrode in the uh, chemist that he was using 
And it wasn't the electromagnetic field that blocked the septation. It was the leaked cis-platinum from the platinum electrode, <laughs> where the accident actually was figured out years later. He got a no, not a Nobel Prize. He never even got into the National Academy, but he became a million, a multimillionaire uh, because it's the most widely used anti-cancer drug in the world. And this yeah. B slide shows that when you just uh, put single cell organism in media with high oxygen, they clump together. So basically what this is really telling us is that during the evolution of Earth, when oxygen levels changed, which they did, and calcium became frequent in the oceans, you now had cells that could clump together and differentiate in the presence of oxygen. That concept, that evolutionary concept, has to be kept in mind in studying any human cell biology. Oxygen levels and calcium levels, among all of the other things needed to keep a cell alive, are critical in determining whether that cell is going to divide symmetrically or asymmetrically. So with with that in mind and cisplatin, and as we start to understand more about cisplatin, because it, it, you know, still being studied for its effects and, you know, both positive and negative effects, is it fair to say that eventually cisplatin will still be used in two, three decades from now, or as we develop our knowledge and begin to understand cellular homeostasis uh, as we move forward, will cisplatin be detrimental to cancer treatment as we begin to understand? Again, you're getting mm. uh, a 10 for asking the critical questions. Uh, the, one of the first observation made by an, a late colleague of mine who was the first physician to test this platinum on a human patient, and he killed that patient because of the kidney toxicity. And to this day, 99% of the papers that are published on cisplatinum mechanism of anti-cancer treatment is that it damages DNA. Nonsense. It does not. It acts epigenetically. All right. And knowing that mechanism, I'm sure I'm not a physician. I'm sure we're going to be able to either not use cisplatinum or any of its modifications or to use it in a way that responds to our understanding of mechanisms. I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, uh, you're, okay. you're always thinking ahead. <laughs> All right, I'm going to... <laughs> put this concept of homeostasis now into uh, another framework. 
uh, it'll just elaborate what I've said before. Of the 200 yeah. trillion cells of the body, I can represent them with three cells. A distal cell, such as the pituitary gland in the brain. It can talk to other cells distal from it by extracellular communication through growth factors, hormones, uh, cytokines. And it makes its way through the systemic system. And if it finds a receptor for that molecule, you can now trigger intracellular communication. And at least two major signals are sent to that cell. One, it goes directly to the genome to tell the genome of that cell, hey, you better turn on and turn off genes because the outside environment has changed. The second signal has to go to the neighboring cell through gap junctions, these protein channels through which ions and small molecules can flow. And they can either increase or decrease those signal transfers. That's going to be through intercellular communication. And now you ask, so what? Well, when the internal physiology, the internal signaling of that cell is changed, only one of five choices does that cell have to respond one is the cell will either proliferate it will differentiate it could apoptose it could senesce or if it's like the pancreas uh, beta cell it could now produce insulin those are five mutually exclusive choices whenever that intracellular signaling changes. You cannot proliferate and apoptose at the same time. You cannot proliferate and differentiate at the same time. You cannot senesce and apoptose at the same time. And you cannot uh, proliferate if you're a terminally differentiated cell at the same time. So what I'm saying is the integration of extra intra and intercellular communication has to be there for homeostasis to occur. But off to the left here, you see we're also exposed not only to these endogenous signals, but to a lot of exogenous toxic signals, whether it's a pesticide, a drug, uh, whatever it is, you can alter any one of those levels of communication. Well, it turns out my lab in 1985, 85, this is 10 years before the isolation of human embryonic stem cells by the Wisconsin and the Johns Hopkins group that landed in President Clinton's desk. Nobody paid attention in 1985 when we received 19 biopsies from normal women who were having reduction mammoplasty. We were already steeped in the stem cell hypothesis of cancer. So our lab had to find 
how do we study stem cells role in cancer if we don't have stem cells? So we came up with a crazy idea. It was called the kiss of death, and I won't have time to talk about it. But we took these 19 <laughs> small pieces of uh, breast biopsies, disassociated the cells, and put them in culture. And within uh, five or six days, what you see in every case were two kinds of colonies started from a single cell. In other words, this colony had a single cell origin and it divided symmetrically to make cells that seemed to like each other and they encapsulated each other. On the other hand, this colony started from a single cell. They also divided symmetrically, but those cells didn't like each other. They seemed to be crawling away from each other. And it didn't matter whether the woman was young or old, was Caucasian, was Asian, was black. It made no difference. We got the same two types of colonies from these reduction mammoplasties. And we developed a technique whereby only one type was growing in the culture media. The other type was eliminated. And we call these type one cells. And was this the the aha moment? Oh yeah, especially this slide. <laughs> because on this type one colony that you're looking at, it started from a single cell. And at the time we were looking at it, it has several hundred cells and they all arose by symmetrical cell division. If you now put a magic molecule on this colony, like caffeine. <laughs> Within a few days on the periphery of that colony, you're beginning to see, and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see this, that the cells that divided on the periphery on the outside are phenotypically, and we now know genotypically, they were exactly the same, but Epigenetically, they were obviously different. These cells were differentiated, but the daughter cell on, on the inside stayed, I, I don't want to use the word stem-like yet because I haven't shown you that, but indeed you know that asymmetric cell division occurred on the cells on the border and symmetric cell division occurred when that mother cell divided to form two cells, one of the cells on the interior maintained uh, stemness. Prior to understanding that it was, you know, OX4A and Connexin 43, what was the the conclusion when when you saw that cell architecture? Like, what was the initial conclusion that it was a obviously some kind of mechanism uh, for the cancer cells to thrive um but what was that first kind of okay. conclusion All looking right. at that when i looked through the microscope and i saw that and i saw the previous colony that had divided only symmetrically and then when they treated it with caffeine it divided asymmetrically in other words, that Im 
immediately told me that those cells had to be stem cells because they're the only okay. cells that have that choice. They can either divide under one set of circumstances to be symmetrical cell division. That's how the colony was uniform. But when they divided asymmetrically, they obviously were becoming differentiated. All right. That's what went through my mind. Whoa, those are stem cells. All right. But we didn't have, as you suggested, we didn't have the molecular evidence yet. But I knew conceptually those cells had to be stem cells. If they were just yeah. progenitor cells, you would never have seen that morphological change. All right. So I'm definitely excited about this slide here because this is a technique that's just phenomenal. It, you know, it's, it's, it's really, really a nice technique. And uh, it's amazing that we actually, within our company, have some technology to look at this digitally. Now. Right. And it's just cool right. to see it this way. In fact, I was just going to mention this. Uh, back when we did these things, this was 1979, the technologies that we had were limited. But having listened to the webinar of your company, I said, you know, this has the potential of using modern confocal imaging and so forth and so on to be utilized uh, in ways that maybe we'll have chance at the end. But let me describe what we did. Uh, we grew the cells in culture, so it looks like a confluent monolayer of skin cells in, in a Petri dish. If you put Lucifer yellow, which is a small fluorescent dye, and rhodamine red dextrat, which is a large molecular weight dye, on living cells, they cannot get into the cells. But we came up with the idea that if you scrape the cell, just like if you cut the skin, those two dye molecules now could go into the cell because the membrane has been temporarily disrupted along the wound edge. And at time zero, when you look under the fluorescent microscope, you see the lucifer yellow and the rhodamine red only in the cells along the wound edge. However, once the dye gets into these living cells, the membrane reheals within milliseconds. And five minutes later, the lucifer yellow can diffuse through gap junctions away from the edge. But the rhodamine red in five minutes after they've been introduced to the wound edged, uh, they don't travel because they can't go through gap junctions. That's cool. And it's very, it's nice because it, it clearly, clearly shows a concept very right. evidently. And this panel, uh, the A panel was treated with lucifer yellow, the cells were live and cut. And you can see five minutes later, the lucifer yellow diffuses away. And you can now quantitate using fluorescent digital uh, methodologies. You can actually measure and compare 
that to, let's say, a cell that doesn't communicate. And in this case, the cells communicate, but they were treated with rhodamine red, which can't go through gap junctions. So five minutes later, they're still at the wound edge. What a great discussion we just had with Dr. Trosco in part two of episode one, Under the Microscope, a podcast by Syntica. Look forward to chatting further into part three and continue this exciting discussion and learn more about Dr. Trosco's work in the area of cancer radiation and the impact in genetics.